Anyway, uh, archaeological evidence for the historical reliability of the New Testament and a sampling of pictures that we'll come back to later. Um, but if I can sort of put in the background of this a sort of overarching argument in the area, I'd say two things. One is that it's very important to remember in, in history and archaeology that an absence of evidence for something is not at all the same thing as evidence of its absence. Just because you haven't got, you haven't dug up the building yet, doesn't mean it didn't exist back then. It, it could mean you just haven't dug in the right place yet, or someone's built their supermarket on top of it and you never will, or um, it did exist but then it got completely demolished and reused um, in other buildings and, and so on. So um, it's very hard in the field to, to say things like, oh, well, we haven't found this, therefore the Bible's inaccurate. And I'll show you some examples of where sort of 19th century um, German critical theologians said that kind of thing and then got egg all over the faces when an archaeologist later then dug up the thing, uh, which is quite fun. The other thing I would say is... Um, along with uh, Lee Strobel, who I'm quoting here from his Case uh, for Christ book, um, that the the more you can, uh, when you test out what a witness says independently, and it proves that he's accurate in those things that you can test, uh, the credibility of the witness goes up, and you trust him more in those instances where you can't independently test him. So this is here, and trying. He's an ex-legal journalist turned apologist. Uh, he says in trying to determine if a witness is being truthful, journalists and lawyers uh, will test all the elements of his or her testimony that can be tested. If this investigation reveals that the person was wrong in those details, this casts considerable doubt on the veracity of his or her entire story. However, if the minutiae check out. This is some indication, not conclusive proof, but some evidence that maybe the witness is being reliable in his or her overall account. So those are the sort of two planks that I put in the background of, of what I'm saying. And then we'll look through a number of what I think are the more interesting specific examples of things that we've dug up under three general ca categories, if you like. That is looking at how archaeology provides evidence of, of culture, um, people's beliefs and practices, of places from um, cities to individual buildings, and um, particularly interestingly, I think, of, of people, people's names, people's official sort of job titles, um, relationships between people that are mentioned uh, in the New Testament as well. So starting off with culture... Um, let's do a little bit of Dan Brown debunking. Uh, that's always a good place to start, I feel. Um, so this is from Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Uh, Professor Teabing here um, saying that uh, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Not the son of God, asks the character. Right, Teabing said. Jesus's establishment of the son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, uh, the behest of the, uh, the emperor at the time. Um, now, the Council of Nicaea was a meeting of church bishops that took place in 325 AD. So, 4th century AD after Christ. 
325. And you're picking up the idea here that um, Jesus was viewed just as this, you know, good bloke, maybe a prophet, moral teacher and so on. And then at the behest of the, uh, uh, the emperor at the time, the, uh, the bishops uh, put forward this idea that, well, let's treat Jesus as divine as well. And let's have a vote on it, and uh, you know, by a majority vote or whatever, uh, we all decide that. Oh yes, okay, we now um, treat Jesus as divine as well as as well as human. Uh, so it wasn't just the Roman emperor who said, right, this is it, and that's it. He, no, there was a sort of forum, a committee. Or... That's right, and there there was indeed a church council of Nicaea in three two five, um, but um, the rest of this. Um, picture that you're picking up from Dan Brown is a load of uh, baloney and I can prove it with just some archaeological examples that show um, that there were people who were thinking of Jesus as being a divine figure well before the Council of Nicaea. Let me show you this painting. I have to squint a little bit. This is a wall painting from a house church uh, in modern-day Syria that's dated to about 235 AD. So this is a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea, easily. Now, you can see there's a figure standing up here with his arm uh, outstretched over the prone figure uh, lying on a bed. And here's the figure carrying his bed. What does this picture depict? Well, the one, the man carrying the bed is when Jesus, the chap was lowered in yeah. the house and they pick up your bed and the other one presumably is raising someone from the dead or, or the girl who no, was, well, it's, died. It, it's actually, it's all the first story. So it's a, um, this is sort of before and after. Okay. In the in the same painting, it's as it were. Right, and um, after on the left. Yeah. So this is him, the 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 paralysed man, prone on his bed, yeah. and on the left. No, my my point is, yeah. normally you would have a timeline sort of moving from left to right in our culture. That yeah. Might be yeah. In, in Syria, the Egyptians read from right to yeah, left. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's right. yeah. So. Um, so that's him at his, at his home or somewhere like that, and then yeah. Yeah, and that's him having been healed, and he's you know, and it's very literalistically portrayed. Mm. This kind of pick up your bed. It was probably you know, uh, in Jesus' time, much more sort of oh, mat kind of you know, <laughs> roll up your 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 sleeping mat and walk kind of thing. But here it's sort of portrayed as a sort of four poster practically, you know. Um, but yes, yeah, so this is. When you know it's a wall painting from a house church, <laughs> quite clearly it's a painting of Jesus healing the, the paralytic who was lowered by his friends through the roof. And what's the really significant thing about that story, apart from the healing? Is it the fact that Jesus says to him, first your sins are forgiven? Yeah. Only God can forgive sin. That's right, and they all accuse him of, of thinking think he's being blasphemous because he says to the guy... I forgive your sins, and then to prove that he has the authority to forgive his sins, mm. he heals him <laughs> as a visible sign. Mm. So here, a hundred years at least before the Council of Nicaea, is a painting of an incident that we know of independently from the, Bi from, from the Bible uh, that uh, is really significant because it's an incident where Jesus claims divinity indirectly. So I think that's 
very interesting. And this, as far as I've been able to find out, is the earliest known representation of, of Jesus. Not that it's, you know, it's far too late to give us any <laughs> authoritative idea of what he actually looked like, but this is the, the earliest pictorial representation of Jesus that we, we have. Uh, now, talking of the healing of the paralytic, which he calls happened uh, Peter's house, uh, this is um, a rather hard to interpret series of small walls, as archaeology often produces, uh, from Capernaum, which is mentioned a lot in the Gospels. Uh, now, in Capernaum, there's the remains of a 5th century church. And they were doing archaeology in this 5th century church, and in 1968, they discovered the remains of a 4th century church underneath the 5th century church. And then they discovered that the 4th century church had been built around a 1st century AD house, which from the middle of the 1st century into the 2nd, 3rd century had been used as a house church. Um, and they knew that because on the, the plast, one of the rooms had been plastered uh, and there were prayers scratched into the wall uh, that mention um, the name of Jesus in these prayers. And um, Constantine, this is the emperor who was at the, the time of the Council of Nicaea, and she went on one of the first sort of pilgrimages and did some very early sort of visiting the holy sites and claiming to find various things that were associated with Jesus and so on. Uh, Aguirre, Constantine's mother, in 380 AD, um, wrote that in Capernaum, the house of the Prince of the Apostles, i.e. Peter, has been made into a church with its original walls still standing, it's where the Lord cured the paralytic. So here's that house where that incident happened, and in that house were prayers which, I mean, it's hard to date, because it was used over a fairly long period of time, but at least in the 3rd century, prayers including things like Jesus Christ the Redeemer, Lord, Jesus Christ, help your servant, um, etc. Um, which seems to imply a very high view of who Jesus is, from people um, quite a long time before the Council of Nicaea. Now, this one is absolutely fascinating. They were extend trying to extend a prison in Megiddo, and they come across this. Uh, what you're looking at here, this is the top-down view of a mosaic floor uh, around a, in an early house church or um, Christian sort of prayer hall, meeting hall uh, for the soldiers. And this... Um, it's dated by sort of coins and pottery and things to about 230 AD. So again, easily 100 years before the Council of Nicaea in 325. Um, let's have a close-up look at some of this. Here you'll notice in the middle of this mosaic some fish, which is interesting because we do know from other sources that the, the fish was used as an early Christian symbol and um, sometimes you, you still get sort of little fish badges or fish stickers for your car, you know. Um, because in Greek, um, the Greek word for fish, ichthus, uh, if you took the first letter of, of each of those, it stood for an acrostic, uh, which uh, was uh, Jesus Christus Theus Us Sota, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Saviour. And so this sort of clever acrostic and then the fish symbol of that acrostic. Um, here's an example from the 5th century uh, mosaic uh, in Stobby, um, where it's got the, the actual Greek letters of the word ichthus in the, the floor of a uh, basilica. 
that where the, the fish symbol comes from then? Yeah. Like, used all over Christianity. Hmm. I always assumed it was from the feeding of the 5,000. Ah. Well, I mean, it, it has lots of, and, the, and Jesus' disciples were fishermen, fishermen. and fishers I'll make you fishers of men, and, and so it has lots of different um, resonances um, of the fish symbol being associated with Christianity from, from early times, when that's sort of widespread sort of symbol or acrostic that's found in archaeology. Um, and so it's interesting that this um, prayer hall from 230 AD has these fish, but even more interesting is this inscription here, uh, which refers to the... This is um, sort of the plinths for the communion table in the middle of the room, probably. And there's an inscription that to- talks about the lady who donated or gave the money for the, the table in the, in the room. And it, it reads, um, The God-loving Acaptus has offered the table to God Jesus Christ as a memorial. Same sort of period. 230. 230. Yeah. That seems to be describing Jesus as quite human. To God Jesus. To God Jesus. To God Jesus. It's the God being the title. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. To God Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. the word memorial more. That seems more human, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, yeah. you said Acaptus. Acaptus is the, the name of the person. Uh, oh, I see. Donated the table, so the the God-loving Acaptus yeah. has donated the communion table um, as a memorial, to, as a memorial to, to the God Jesus Christ. Or yeah, I mean, obviously you're translating from from the Greek here, but how was this dated? Uh, again, by by pottery and coins yeah. is usually the the way you find the other material things that you can date independently yeah. or have dates on them yes. from that strata. Yeah. <coughs> uh, this is called the Araxaminos Graffito. Um, graffito being the Latin for graffiti, unsurprisingly. Uh, it's a wall graffiti from near the Palatine Hill in Rome. Uh, I've seen a range of dates for this from the sort of 1st to 3rd century. Pick AD 200 with Richard Bochum. Um, you have here, obviously, a crucified figure with a donkey's head and a man standing in front with his arm uh, raised up and this uh, scratching in the wall here says, Alex Aminos worships his god. Oh. Hmm. What an idiot my fellow Roman soldier is. He worships this crucified ass of a bloke who got himself crucified. How idiotic, you know. Or uh, some people have said he might translate it as Alex Minos, worship your God. <laughs> you know. um, but however you take it, clearly, you know, who else do we know who was worshipped, uh, <laughs> who was crucified? Um, <laughs> but you can only worship a God. You know, worship your... So this is like... Long, long way before the Council of Nicaea in 325. This is like 200-ish. Um... Actually, there why were people the, around. It's just, I, I think um, he has, you know, literally made an ass of himself. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah I get it. Um, Donkeys have been used as a, yeah. as a sort of, yeah. as, a, as a figure of division. For, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, all the way, you think all the way back to Balaam's 
ass. Uh, now, unfortunately, I don't have a picture of this because I haven't released it yet. And this is something I found th this last week. This is a report that went out to lots of different papers and things. It's like the uh, the uh, the press release. This one I got from LiveScience.com. Um, researchers have identified what's believed to be the world's earliest surviving Christian inscription. Uh, uh, officially and funkily named uh, NCE156. I love those archaeological tags. Um, the inscription is written in Greek and it's dated to the latter half of the second century, so between 150 and 200 AD. Okay, uh, alludes to Christian beliefs. Uh, uh, quote: If it is in fact a second-century inscription, as I think it probably is, says this archaeologist, it's about the earliest Christian material object that we possess. Uh, says uh, Gregory Snyder of the Davidson College in North Carolina. Um, Snyder, who detailed the findings in the most recent issue of the Journal of Early Christian Studies, believes it to be a funeral epigram that incorporates both Christian and some pagan elements, or picks up on the way that um, pagan imagery was used in funeral um, epigrams, but has Christian imagery and references in it as well. And it, as he translated it, it's a little strange to our ears, but he translates it, um, uh, To my bath, the brothers of the bridal chamber carry the torches. Here in our halls they hunger for the true banquets, even while praising the Father and glorifying the Son. There, with the Father and the Son, is the only spring and source of truth. But praising the Father and glorifying the Son, the only spring and source of truth, is the obviously Christian um, element to this uh, uh, epigram um, whereas the, the sort of imagery of the, the bridal chain, chamber uh, and so on is evidently sort of typical pagan imagery of you sort of going to meet death rather than your new life <laughs> um, in the bridal and the, the torches and, and so on um, maybe this hungering for the for the for the true banquets, these bits in the square brackets are, of course, interpolations by in bits where we've lost bits. But intrigued by the, it's, uh, what, 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 what the, um, the significance of the bath. The bath. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm no expert on this, but again, it sort of springs to mind the sort of the imagery of, of baptism, for example, the going into the water and coming out to the new life, dying to the old life and coming out. Um, that was obviously a widespread between in Jewish culture, purification, cleansing. It's not a stretch to read some import into that. Um, as I say, it's a little, little, not the sort of thing we put on the gravestone, you know, but. Um, <laughs> Um, it's interesting, even if it has a sort of mix of cultures, um, it, clearly from the, as I say, the latter half of the second century, praising the Father and glorifying the Son. Where, where is it? Does it say where it actually is? Then, uh, I haven't, no, I can't remember from here. Um, I don't think the, the press well, release actually sort of said. Yeah. Um, and as I say, it's, uh, I haven't been, I don't subscribe to this journal and they haven't released photos of it yet and it's, this work sort of, they want to keep it secret and then release it all to the 
this was just like the press release, just sort of foreshadowing. We're going to be we're going to be publishing our details in this journal, kind of. So you will have to go there and find it. But this was I only found that this this week. But, um, you know, uh, as I should probably say, as with a lot of these things, you'll always find that um, there's room for disagreement among the experts on the interpretation of the material that they've dug up, and there are different sort of political and philosophical presuppositions affecting how they interpret the data and some people will support certain finds as authentic and other people will think it's a fake and you take everything in the field with a certain pinch of salt and see how it shakes down over time but um, I thought I'd try and put in some of the most recent stuff that's been coming out um, this is Paul Johannan his ossuary or bone box and this is a bone from his ankle with a rather large nail through it. And you can see here in this reconstruction where the nail would have been going through in his foot. Um, a burial site with about 35 bodies in it and covered in 1968. Uh, this is Johannan Ben Hagagol. He had a seven inch nail driven through both feet. Um, some archaeologists think his legs were crushed with a blow consistent with the common use of the Roman crucifragium and he's breaking the legs when you're on the cross so that you can't push up and breathe anymore um, but certainly he's um, been nailed to something through the ankles um, this is our only archaeological find of a crucifixion victim um, despite the fact that we know the Romans did an awful lot of crucifying of people <laughs> yeah this is, this is it um, so again, it sort of re-emphasises that how piecemeal the mm. the bits of the past that make it through. Because we know from literary sources all over the place that a lot of this sort of stuff went on. Um, but it's also very interesting because some critics have said, you know, as as a criminal, Jesus wouldn't have been given an honourable burial. He would have been just thrown into the common grave, and um, and so on. And it's you know the, the biblical story is unlikely because this stuff wouldn't have happened to. Uh, you know, a criminal getting a, a decent burial, um, despite the fact that it was Jewish law that you had to, you know, in, in Romans accommodating local culture and so on. But our only archaeological find of a crucifixion victim was someone who was, oh, given a decent burial. He has a bone box, and um, <laughs> so he wasn't just tossed into a common grave. Interesting. So at least bears out um, the the possibility of that. Uh, sort of thing happening which is recorded to have happened to Jesus and another piece of archaeology uh, relating to the uh, the whole passion of Christ is the Nazareth uh, decree um, which is a big slab of stone as you can see with a decree written on it uh, found in Nazareth in the 19th century and it's inscribed with a decree, decree from the Emperor Claudius who was like AD 41 to 54 and it basically contains a message from the emperor saying that no graves should be disturbed or bodies extracted or moved from burial places. And the sentence for the offence of moving bodies from burial places is from henceforward going to be capital punishment. Well, it wasn't before. And the fact that this decree should be found in Nazareth, the hometown of one Jesus, who's rumoured to have by his followers to have been resurrected, and you know, the Jews say no, his disciples came away and stole the body. 
Um, we know that there was uh, some uh, rioting um, in connection with uh, religious tensions in Rome um, between Jews and Christians in AD 49 during the reign of the Emperor Claudius. And it's been speculated that maybe Claudius, in investigating this tension, this writing of Jews to do with the name of Crestus, uh, we have an independent report um, from, a, I think it's a Roman historian about this, might then have found, you know, been told by the Jews, oh, these, these Christians said that he rose from the dead, but they stole the body and started this rumour. And he erected and said, oh, well, I'll stop people moving bodies and starting religious cults. Let's uh, make a death penalty for... Mm. Um, plausible okay some places let's look at some places rather than some beliefs and um, practices um, Nazareth uh, house discovered in 2010 was the end of last year uh, according to the excavation director Yard Dena Alexander the discovery is of the utmost importance since it reveals for the very first time a house from the Jewish village of Nazareth and thereby sheds light on the way of life at the time of Jesus, that the building that we found is small and modest and is most likely typical of the dwellings in Nazareth in that period. This may well have been a place that Jesus and his contemporaries were familiar with, Alexander said. It's a logical suggestion. Um, before we'd found there was a sort of graveyard and um, olive um, pits and um, we hadn't found houses uh, of Nazareth, and again, some critics sort of say, oh, Nazareth's never existed, and here, here's a house. Um, so that's nice. Capernaum, which we mentioned earlier, um, lots of references to Capernaum in the Gospels. Jesus taught in the synagogue there, um, exercised a man with demons in the synagogue in Capernaum. Um, not this synagogue, because this is too recent. Um, this synagogue is built on top of, though, the foundations of the previous synagogue, which you can see in the basalt stone, here, so these are the foundations of the synagogue from Capernaum from Jesus' time. Peter's house from Capernaum, which we've already mentioned. John chapter 5, the healing in the pool of Bethesda. Um, John 5, 1-15 describes this pool in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate called Bethesda, surrounded by five covered colonnades or, or columns. Till the 19th century, there was no evidence for the existence of this pool outside of John's Gospel. And lots of liberal critics said, look how inaccurate John is. There's this pool with five covered colonnades and so on. We haven't found it. It doesn't really exist. It's probably metaphorical. What, what else do we know has got five? Oh, the five books of Moses. It's a metaphor. It's all about the five books of Moses. And the, it's just, you know, it's, it's not, you know, historically accurate. Here it is. Um... <laughs> Complete with colonnades. One, one two, three, four. Uh, the five covered colonnades in the pool of Bethesda. <laughs> exactly where John's Gospel said it would be. Here's another pool. Um, discovered in 2004. They were doing some works on the, uh, the waterworks. Uh, stumbled upon the first century ritual pool of Siloam. Mentioned in John 9. One to seven. Um... They uncovered these steps during pipe maintenance uh, near the mouth of Hezekiah's tunnel, which would take us back to Old Testament archaeology. Um, Hezekiah built a tunnel to bring um, water from a spring outside Jerusalem to inside Jerusalem when um, Sennacherib was going to attack Jerusalem. 
um, and then they use that water in Jerusalem later for ritual cleansing purposes on your pilgrimage to the temple. Uh, you can see these big steps. So imagine a big sort of square of steps leading down to water in a pool coming from Hezekiah's tunnel. Um, and there's still running water at the bottom today. And again, dated by coiners and pottery to Jesus's time. There's the the sewage pipe that they were digging up and replacing when they stumbled across it. And now, people. Fascinating stuff. Uh, do it any time, ask a, you know, questions and subsidiaries as far as I know. Um, I think this is great. Just take two verses from the Gospel of Luke. He's Luke, uh, a very good historian, uh, he ties it down so much to um, contemporary historical markers. Um, in the 15th year of the reign of, one, Tiberius Caesar... When two, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah, and three, Herod, tetrarch, that's a governor of a quarter of a province, of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria and Traconius, um, he's mentioned independently in Josephus's Jewish Antiquities, and four, Licinius, tetrarch of Albany, during the high priesthood of Annas and five Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Uh, yeah, yeah, so he's saying, this is happening in space-time history when this guy was doing this and this guy had this official title and this guy was, you know. Let's take the five that I've mentioned there, one I've referenced to Josephus. Um, one, Tiberius Caesar, here he is. Um, this is the Caesar uh, Denarius, uh, which was the coin that Jesus was referring to when he said, you know, um, whose portrait is on the coin? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. This is Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, the tribute penny. Uh, Pontius Pilate, again, no reference to him outside of the New Testament until... Uh, in 1961, they found um, on a stone that had been reused uh, in a colosseum, to build a colosseum, um, an inscription that mentions t- Tiberium, uh, Tius Pilatus, Ectus. And these are interpolations, but it's probably Tiberium Pontius Pilatus Prefectus. Uh, so the person and the title, as mentioned by Luke. Uh, Herod the Great... Here's a coin from his realm. Um, there's lots of archaeology to do with Herod the Great. Um, recently, one thing they've just discovered, uh, um, one of the things that used to be said is Herod the Great um, was responsible for the completion of the temple and the temple wall and everything. And they've just um, found some coins later than Herod's reign um, under the wall of the temple, the, the Great Wall. Um, showed that it was actually finished later than than Herod's reign. So he started it but didn't finish it. Um, uh, here's a bronze coin from his side. And actually on the bronze coin it says Herod King, the year it was struck, year three of his reign, which was 37 BC. And uh, so on. Um, in 1996, this uh, inscription on an ostracon, that is a sort of pottery vessel for carrying wine in, uh, was found, dated to 19 BC, and uh, the inscription is in Latin and reads, Herod the Great, King of the Jews, which is the first mention of the full title of King Herod outside of the, the Bible, but gives the same, Herod the Great, King of the Jews. 
And this is Herodium. This is a man-made hill, fortress, palace of Herod the Great in the Judean wilderness. It's uh, 2,475 feet above sea level, uh, built in uh, about 23 BC. It had seven storeys of living rooms and storage areas and cisterns and a bathhouse and uh, a courtyard filled with flowers and um, all sorts of stuff. And here's a, you can see the steps up here and then the walls and all the stuff inside. And very impressive structure. And here is the late uh, Ehud Netzer, archaeologist, speaking in a press conference in May 2007, announcing that they had at last discovered Herod's tomb. Um, here and uh, here it is being dug up and here's part of the esophagus the um, not esophagus it's the wrong word sarcophagus his <laughs> esophagus gracious me um, with a reconstruction of what the sarcophagus would have uh, would have looked like uh, Licinius now scholars said Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. Everybody knows that Licinius was not a tetrarch, as Luke says, but rather the ruler of Calchas half a century earlier. We know about Licinius. But an inscription was then later found from the time of Tiberius, AD 14 to 37, which names one Licinius as tetrarch in, oh look, Albia. Just as Luke said, near Damascus. Um, turned out there'd been two government officials with the same name. <laughs> Caiaphas, the high priest at Jesus' trial. You know, the guy who's going for, oh, you know, the witnesses aren't, aren't getting their story together, even though we bribed them. Kind of, come on, are you the son of God, the Messiah? Come on, put your foot in it. And then Jesus takes him up on, on his offer. Um in a tomb located in the south of Jerusalem, several ossuaries, one of which contained the bones of the former high priest Caiaphas and his family, a very ornate bone box. Con you know, contrast this with the one that we had of um, that poor crucifixion yeah. victim from earlier, very ornate. Well, yes, the practice was you, you, you buried the person in a rock-cut tomb, put them on a shelf in the tomb, yeah. um, waited for the body to decompose, Go back, get the bones together, put them in a bone box, write their name on it. Yeah. And then you've got more space to put the next family member in and, and so on. And then maybe, you know, if you put, you know, put them in the same box and add a name, or if you're rich enough, get another box, yeah. and so on. And it's a, it's a funerary practice um, peculiar to um, pre-AD 70, when the Romans invaded and flattened Jerusalem after the uh, the revolt in the Jewish revolt. Is that something that they stopped doing after Yeah. Because the then then they were all sort of exiled and and the Romans sort of did things like build build temples to Greek gods and so on all over holy sites and which probably helped Christians remember various holy sites because and they did things like build Greek temples over the place where Jesus was meant to be born. Or, um, <laughs> it's like, well, we'll wipe out this this particular religious practice. We'll put our own one on top of it. And the Christian like, thank you for putting a marker down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Not just dragged out each time. They, a member of the family went and they just filled it up. Yeah. 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 
until it was full, and then you, yeah. And uh, this has written on it, Yosef uh, Bar, son of Caiaphas, uh, and so on. Now, Alexandra of Cyrene, this is absolutely fascinating stuff. Remember when Jesus is, is on his way to be crucified, and the Roman soldier stumbles because he's you know, being flogged half to death already and everything. The, the Roman soldiers pick on a guy out of the crowd and say, you, carry the crossbeam. Okay. Um, Simon from Cyrene, says Matthew 27, 32, Luke 23, 26. And we also know from Mark 15, 21, Simon had sons called Alexander and Rufus. And Mark mentions Alexander and, and Rufus. And uh, 1941, um, they discovered a tomb in the Kidron Valley, where they find lots of tombs. Pottery dated it to the first century, it had been sealed. Um, tomb contained 11 osseries bearing 12 names in 15 inscriptions, and some of these names were particularly common names from Cyrenaceae. And the inscriptions on one of these osseries says, Alexandros bar Simon. Bar Simon. Uh, and on the lid of the ossuary, there's an inscription bearing the name Alexandros in Greek, and then the Hebrew, um, Q-R-N-Y-T. Uh, the meaning of this isn't entirely clear, but it's very plausible to think that the person making the inscription meant to write Q-R-N-Y-H, which is the Hebrew for Cyrenetian. Wasn't particularly good at spelling, you know. <laughs> um, it's a nonsense word, but if you just get one letter slightly different, it says Cyrenetian, which would fit. <laughs> um, Tom Powers uh, in Biblical Archaeology Review says, when we consider how uncommon the name Alexander was, and note that the Ossery inscription lists him in the same relationship to Simon, as the New Testament does, and recall that the burial cave contains the remains of people from Cyrenetia, the chance that the Simon on the Ossery refers to Simon of Cyrene mentioned in the Gospel seems very likely. How, how common a name is Simon? Uh, Simon, more common. Yeah. Um, Simon that, Peter. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, oh, no, but I, t- I take the point, but... To but Alexander, there was yeah. There one Alexander who had a son named, with a common name. Simon, but it's got to be an Alexander from Cyrenicia, who's um, buried near Jerusalem. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's right. It, it's not an. It's not a knockdown. It's certainly not a QED, but it's uh, the archaeologists think. Mm, yeah, so a fairly uncommon name. He's in the right relationship. He's from the right area. He's buried near to Jerusalem, and they're mentioned around that area. His son's still there in the community. Um, yeah, you know. Well, the other question is, where did Rufus go? Well, yeah. <laughs> where did Rufus go? Interesting. Still. Um, well, how about this one, the Bar Sabbath family? Uh, now, of course, when um, uh, Judas commits suicide and the early disciples say, we need 12 of us, we need to get another someone who's been with us from the beginning and is a witness to the resurrection and so on, um, they put forward a couple of names, Joseph called Bar Sabbath, also known as Justice, and Matthias, mentioned in Acts 1. And they have a pray about it, they cast lots, and Matthias gets the job. And Acts 15 mentions um, the church choosing some of their men to send with them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. So we've got 
um, Joseph called Bar Sabbath and Judas called Bar Sabbath and we've got this chap Matthias Jerusalem Christian Review 2000 uh, reports archaeologists uncovering a first century tomb from Kidron Valley again containing ossuaries bearing signs of the cross inscriptions identify the cave as the tomb of the Bar Sabbath family from the book of Acts um Professor Bezer states, at least some members of this family were among the very first disciples of Christ. Also is included Simon Bar-Saba, the Hebrew version of Simon Bar-Sabbath. Mary, daughter of Simon. Now, there's quite a lot of Marys mentioned in the New Testament. And some of them we know, like Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Jesus. And, but there are other Marys. And it's interesting that here's another Mary in this family that we do know is already associated with the, the early disciples. Joseph Barthabeth. And the other candidate from Acts, remember Matthias, maybe he belonged to the same family. Because one of the other coffins from the same cave carries the Hebrew for Matthias. Uh, another son of Sabbath was Judah Bar Sabbath. Mazer says the impact of these fascinating discoveries is multiplied when we consider the additional evidence found in the tombs, such as coins and artifacts, clearly show the tomb was hermetically sealed less than a decade after the crucifixion of Christ. So about AD 40. This is years before any part of the New Testament was written, proving that scriptures are consistent with the archaeological evidence. Uh, this is a recent claim, so again, uh, and um, when you're talking about sort of bones of people, sure, again, pinch of salt, but this this might seem plausible. Um, so Bulgarian claimed to have the, the bone box of John the Baptist. Um, I can't pronounce this name, Pop, Popcon Stanilov. Headed an archaeological team that uncovered a reliquary or ancient container for relics in which the there were eight bone pieces attributed to John the Baptist were found. Now this reliquary was found embedded in an altar rather than sort of on, on display for being you know touched and venerated and so on. It was just sort of inside the construction of an altar. Uh, in the ruins of a monastery on Sveti Ivan, a small island in the Black Sea of uh, Sozopol, um, Professor told the media he based his support for the finds authenticity on a Greek inscription found on a, another box with the reliquary. God, save your servant Thomas to St. John, June 24. The date's that of the religious feast of St. John the Baptist, June 24th. The island's name and the monastery's dedication to St. John are also consistent with this idea. So it's an island called like St. John's Island, St. John's Monastery, with a reliquary in it. Um, with an inscription on another box saying, I brought these these bones uh, to the island on the Feast of St. John. Um, maybe these are the bones of St. John. On the other hand, it has, of course, been said that if all the bones that are meant to be the bones of St. John <laughs> really are the bones of St. John, the guy must have had, like, three heads and eight arms. And <laughs> um, So we'll see how this runs out in the wash, but this is sort of one of the latest... Um, archaeological finds that was doing the rounds and um, we'll see but 
you know, maybe, maybe this is more plausible than some of the other claims that are. Same sort of argument as pieces of the true cross. Yeah. Pieces of the true cross are all put together. In but, yeah, that, that's right. But, so they can't all be right, but that doesn't mean all of them are wrong, you see. <laughs> and maybe this one is given, it's got some, you know, associations and inscriptions that are, uh, make it plausible, but we'll see. Sorry, my mm. history's terrible, but um, is it, was the Roman calendar in that, that early? Like, I, I don't really know so much about it. No, I, I can't answer your question, I don't know. Mm. Um, 1524. Jan. Yeah. Well, it's, it's June, June, January is after Janus, which Janus, is the Roman god. Yeah. Most of them are after Roman mm. gods. Yeah, yeah, sure, but it's worth a lot. Juno. So I, I'm not sure if that was that early. But no, it's under, yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah, it's no, there was there was Juno, isn't there? Um, it's Greek goddess, I think. Um, Roman version of uh, this one. This is probably slightly more plausible. Uh, tomb believed to be that of Saint Philip the Apostle, unearthed during excavations of a fifth-century church in the ancient Turkish city of Heropolis, 2011. Um, the reports they seem to be fairly confident about this one. Now. <clears throat> Mid-first century AD chalk ossuary discovered in 2002 with an inscription on it that says uh, Yeshua uh, Ahid Yosef uh, Bar Yaakob. Uh, now we know James, the brother of Jesus, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Uh, was martyred in AD 62 in Jerusalem. Uh, Herschel Shanks, editor of the Biblical Archaeological Review, says this box is more likely the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus of Nazareth, than not. In my opinion, it's likely that this inscription does mention the James and Joseph and Jesus of the New Testament. Um, you could read his book, The Brother of Jesus, um, written with Ben Withington III. Um, there was a, a lot of brouhaha about this ossuary, um, particularly when archaeologists, or when you dig up something in situ in a dig, that's great. But of course, a lot of stuff sort of comes onto the the black market, as it were. And there's obviously a lot of pressure for forgeries because you can get money for things that are important and significant. But just because it's on the black market doesn't mean it, it's not true, and you have to sort of look. Um, at all of the scientific data you can get about it and they do things about um, the type of writing on it and the, the sort of uh, um, the sort of state that it is in dating it and the kind of the, what's called the patina that builds up on things over time and um, various experts can then disagree in different fields and this is like well the, the, uh, the writing evidence says uh, this is a fake and the geologist says well, it can't be because the um, you know the patina on this is too old to have been and so on um, so there's a big brouhaha about this um, main box the um, jo- um, James son of Joseph brother of Jesus um, bone box, um, but it does seem to be shaking down that more likely than not it's true. There was a court case involving the guy who brought it onto the market who was accused of being a forger and faker, and the court case fell apart and most of the experts seems to have testified that they think it's genuine and, and so on. What sort of size is it? Um, 
Yeah, well, they're um, sort of generally sort of about, you know, yeah, just sort of this big enough to sort of get a get a uh, leg bone in because you don't break the bones up, you keep them whole. So sort of it needs to be long enough to fit your longest bone in. What was the average then? <laughs> Shorter than us. Yeah. Um, but, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, all of which is just a sampling, I think, some of the more interesting bits of the archaeological evidence that's adding to this cumulative case of where we can check them out in terms of the archaeology. It does seem to bear out the accuracy of what they say. And particularly in these cases where people have said, oh, look how inaccurate it is here. We know about Licinius and we haven't dug up this pool. And wait a few years, they dig it up. And it actually confirms the record, Um, which doesn't mean that everything that the New Testament says can be proved by archaeology. Certainly can't. Or that everything that it says must be right. But it's adding to this sort of accumulation of thinking, actually, well, we've been able to check, check Luke out or whatever. He seems to know what he's on about. Um, yeah. Mm, thank you, please. Mm. Really interesting. So you sit down with Richard Dawkins with that lot. <laughs> yes. Uh, and he has counter arguments to say, well, actually. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have counter arguments because he haven't. He hasn't even looked into that sort of stuff. He's he's uh, stuck in the mire of nineteenth-century German liberal theology of the Rudolf Bultmann. Um, the Gospels aren't even an attempt to accurate history. We can't know anything about Jesus through history. He'll begrudgingly admit it's plausible that Jesus existed, which is more than some of the other new atheists will say. They're, they're still in the... There probably wasn't even a Jesus. Um, so people like Victor Stenger and, and Christopher Hitchens. Um, um, yeah, for the new atheism, the sort of last 200 years of the development of the, the second and now the third quest for the historical Jesus has just sort of never happened. Um, <laughs> so, fingers in their ears. Yeah. He's tightly but, shut, sort of. Then. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've got a lot of friends who are atheists, but none of them deny that Jesus existed. Yeah. But it's just a very... Yeah. It's a very, yeah, very, very radical. There might be a sort of a handful of scholars who say that. Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion... Um, mentions uh, the arguments of Professor Wells of London University, you know, who, are, who argues that Jesus never existed. And well, I think he probably did, but it's a bit begrudging. So it doesn't tell you that Professor Wells was a professor of German. <laughs> <laughs> um. I'm quite amazed at how much archaeological evidence there was that was shown. I mean, I, I, I'm not a historian, hmm. I don't know, but I mean... Somebody would say, well, Edward I or Edward II or whoever, Henry II, what evidence do we have that they actually lived? Mm. Other than the fact that there is a sort of mini age and mm. where they mm. were. So, I mean, it, it, there is a lot, isn't there, for actually out of a very small mm. area on the map, mm. a small number of people. Yeah. Um, it is an area of the world where archaeological evidence survives a bit better than people try. Because of the yeah. time. It's, it's very warm, dry, deserty, yeah. etc. Well, there's a tomb here, yeah. Or even a yeah. cave here is not as good yeah. as it yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't preserve stuff, no. Yeah. That's right, so it does have that advantage. Um, yeah. Going back to the fish. Mm. Which, um, which you, mm. 
Am I right in thinking that that was, on the country here, a sign that, that people would indicate that they were Christian in the fact that it was not approved of by the Romans? Yes, it was a sign was under sign persecution. Is that right? Or? You could just sort of scratch it in the sand and yeah, cover it over. And yeah. <laughs> we were taught people doodled at school. We were taught that people doodled and did, would do half of it with their foot. And if the other person was, they'd sometimes finish it off with their yeah. foot. Because oh, they'd know how to compete. It was so, so yeah. vicious. Interesting. Um, just, you'd just be looking like you were scuffing mm. around in the, in the dirt with your foot. Yeah. Is there any actual documentary evidence mm. that supports that practice? At all, I, I don't know of any, <laughs> but I'm not an expert. <laughs> so if your teacher said, Mrs. That, Jones, Mrs. Jones <laughs> you know, I will um, <laughs> defer to the expertise of Mrs. Jones. We watched a cartoon called Story Keepers, and it was a family who told the stories of Jesus, and mm. they were in Rome when it was, you know, you think you got yeah. put, put in prison if mm. they were found to be Christians, and they would leave signs. Yeah. Where they went. I watched those. Well. And they mm. they'd draw mm. it in the flower dough because they were in a baker's. And, oh, right. Yeah, they left the <laughs> yeah. I mean, of, of course, yeah, I, it right. it's, it's <laughs> hard to draw a hard and fast line here, but I've sort of kept to material objects rather than writing. And in one sense, you dig up a, a codex or a scroll, you know, that's archaeology, isn't it? But then you, you kind of treat, oh, it's written evidence, so you don't mention it in a talk on archaeology. But there's plenty, if, if, if you just stick to non-Christian written evidence from 1st, 2nd century, um, there's lots of stuff that you can go to from, from Jewish writers, from Roman writers, from pagan Greek writers that mention Christian beliefs, mention Jesus. Yeah, um, a, a dozen or so sources mention the crucifixion. Um, you can build up a sort of general outline of the life of Christ just by looking at early non-Christian sources, let alone um, second century early Christian sources. And so I, I opened the book looking at the letters of um, uh, St Ignatius, who was said to be torn to shreds by lions in the amphitheatre in Rome in 108 AD. Um, and on his way to be martyred, wrote a series of letters to different Christian communities along the way, um, talking about the divinity of Christ and how some people were heretics because they said he wasn't really human and um, uh, and so on. Or you look at um, the early persecution of Christians, look at the letter of, of Pliny to the emperor at the time, talking about how, how should I proceed on these accusations against Christians, and, uh, you know, I've, I've tortured a few deaconesses to see what they'll tell me, and uh, <laughs> etc. And they've, you know, they've confessed that they uh, they meet early in the morning and have a meal together and pray to Jesus as to a God, and, um, you know, how should I treat them, and, and so on. There's <laughs> plenty of evidence without even going to, you know, Christian writings for the <laughs> Christian practices in the life of Jesus and so on. So. Did the Roman yeah. emperor see himself as a sort of a god, though? Isn't that the main? Oh, thing? oh yes, but in a in a polytheistic religious sense, kind of I'm the emperor, so you all worship me, and I'll have a few temples to myself built alongside the temples of of uh, Artemis and Temple of Apollo and 
Um, but, yeah, how... <laughs> that's right. Uh, and sort of how seriously they took it. I mean, there was one emperor who sort of quipped on his deathbed, you know, alas, I think I am becoming a god. You know, kind of... Um, <laughs> But that's again, that's very different from monotheistic Jewish people thinking that a fellow Jew is God. <laughs> um, you know, Christian worship of, of God is is not a sort of polytheistic divination or. He's a demigod like Hercules or something. Um, the third quest for the historical Jesus in particular puts an emphasis on interpreting Jewish against the Jewish Christ, uh, Jesus against the Jewish background rather than a pagan background, as some earlier scholars tried try to do. Um, At the beginning, Pete, you were saying that um, in the first uh, slide you had, I think. The Council of Nicaea was it was about three twenty. Three twenty five. Before yeah. that, uh, after the death of Jesus, mm. really, um, anyway, what I'm trying to say is, if it if he didn't exist, if it didn't matter, mm. uh, that can't be the case because it would just have fizzled out, wouldn't it? I mean, the, even the Romans tried to suppress it, and then mm. they obviously mm. said, yes, there was a man called Jesus. He was just a prophet. He had lots of prophets. Yeah. And then three hundred years later, or whatever it was. They decided it was divine, so mm. that's evidence almost in itself, isn't it, in a way? Mm. I think particularly the the the, yeah. the the Jewish, more perhaps so than the Roman persecution, because the Jews were really there on the ground where the movement started. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the Jewish reaction to uh, the proclamation of early Christianity was to say things like, well, of course Jesus did healings and exorcisms and things but he did it by the power of Beelzebub it wasn't the power of God or of course there was an empty tomb but it was because the disciples stole the body yeah. so this or, is the Jews saying that yeah. Yeah. the Romans uh, weren't really that interested the Romans weren't really you know um, yeah. but, they crucified him because the Jews all were like yeah. Yeah. this is a sort of inter-Jewish religious matter um then perhaps it starts coming to prominence when there are these riots in 49 in, in Rome because of um, something to do with the name of Crestus, of Christ, of, um, and you get that Nazareth decree about the body and it's starting to become known. And then you get persecutions under sort of um, the time of Pliny and um, there was a persecution and then the emperor sort of switched to a don't ask, don't, don't tell kind of policy. Now, I'm not going to actively go after these Christians, but if anyone gets dobbed in, then you better deal with it, because we're not, you know, these Christians, you know. The word on the street says they're cannibals, anyway. Because they, they, they meet in these secret meetings to eat flesh and blood. And they, do you know, they, they take babies. When people leave their babies out in the, in the countryside to be exposed and die, because they don't want it, they've got enough girls and the family, you know, leave them out to die as all right-thinking citizens, you know, do um, <laughs> uh, these Christians come along and they, they steal the babies that we've left out to be exposed and they, they, they take them what do they take the babies from? what do they take the babies from? Well, no, the Christians did take the babies but it's because they were against 
<laughs> exposing babies to be killed. And they would, Christians would come along and they'd take them into their families and look after them. But the pagans all say, yeah, what are they taking those babies for? I've heard they meet in secret to eat blood and flesh. They're eating babies. You know, um, they're weird, these Christians. They, they don't worship the gods. They don't go to temple. They won't worship the emperor. You know, we're, we're all this sort of synchronistic, you know, you can have your gods and we'll have ours so long as you all admit that, you know, they're all basically the same, aren't they? And you, everyone can have their own god. You can't have this sort of... They're so intolerant, these Christians, with their... <laughs> there's only one god. You know, we better, we better persecute them. Um, it's not good for civil coherence and so on, is it? And, you know, so there's these persecutions and then it develops into a sort of don't ask, don't tell and there are various times yeah. of persecution and... And so on, but yeah. So a lot of political manoeuvring. Yeah. Oh, it was the emperor. Who was the emperor at the time of these? Um, I remember the opening here. Oh yeah, Trajan, the Roman emperor Trajan, uh, ninety-eight to one one seven. He was paranoid about private clubs nurturing political opposition. And so he pronounced an outright ban on all such organisations. His suspicions of secret clubs went to such length that he banned even voluntary fire brigades. <laughs> <laughs> Another group caught up in Trajan's paranoia were adherents of a young but fast-growing religious movement. Um, I've got a great uh, quote here, an early description of this, uh, this young, fast-growing religious movement. A rabble of profane conspiracy. Their alliance consists in meetings at night with solemn rituals and inhuman revelries. They despise temples as if they were tombs. They disparage the gods and ridicule our sacred rites. Just like a rank growth of weeds, the abominable haunts where this impious confederacy meet confederacy meet are multiplying all over the world dum, dum, dum. <laughs> the Christians are coming you know um. <laughs> I think that's a controversy here we're not alleging that they didn't kind of make the decision at that point that they were going to preach Jesus Trinity as church dogma <laughs> They, they did make that decision there, didn't they? Uh, uh, not really, no. Uh, it's what Mark Lincoln John, for, uh, for certain, and that's certain. And a very authoritative friend of mine tells me that they decided that Jesus Divinity was going to be featured as dogma then. I don't know. I don't have to go back to right. that. Right, but, but well, it's probably how you p p portray that. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's not the case that they weren't, that the church wasn't promulgating the idea that Jesus was divine as well as human before that. Yes, that's right. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the um, the fact that you have an you know an official declaration from the Council of Bishops, perhaps against some heretical group, mm. that you know this particular heresy is heresy because mm. blah. But then to portray that as saying, and so therefore, before then, nobody thought of Jesus as... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. It's, it's an interesting point, because people like... Mm. The, the fact is there that the Council of Nicaea did kind of do this, did, did make this decision, but that in no way yeah, actually... No idea in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Mm. That, that in no way sort of suggests that, that as you say, wasn't the... Because uh, mm. I, I know when they voted on it, there were about 280 bishops there, and... Mm. Very few, under ten of them, voted mm. for Jesus sort of being portrayed as a as a man. Yeah. Uh, so. It's fascinating from from Ignatius's letter that I mentioned. It's fascinating that, and then this is from sort of so first decade of the second century. 
the heresy that he's worried about is people saying, well, of course Jesus was divine. Mm. These Christians have got the runners on the stick when they're saying that he's human. Yes. <laughs> um, the temptation in you know, that, that early time was to say Jesus was divine, but not human. Far from being the case, well, of course he was human and a prophet, but he wasn't divine, you know. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the, the thing that, that made, that made the, the doctrine of, of the, um, the doctrine of Christ as God and man so mm. distinct, mm. because it's completely new. Yeah. Because every Unique. other religion, when, when, some, when somebody comes down to earth and it's doing miracles, it's because mm. they're divine and not, yeah. of, not of man. That's right, no, it's Zeus. Of course you can't kill somebody who's not of flesh and he'll come back and they're apparently dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but Ignatius is like, no, you know, spurn anyone who says, you know, Jesus wasn't really of David's line, really born of a virgin, really crucified, really suffered, really died. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And there's, there's, there's additional um, documentary evidence of, of, of multiple gospels mm. and, and we, there were multiple um, cults for the better word mm. uh, with different ideas about exactly who Jesus was and exactly how his how his teachings um, how to react to his teachings right? and the, the, the Gnostics and the Coptics and, mm. Mm. and which sort of led to the council of Nice that's right but and, and the sort of the the desire to kind of really nail down mm. exactly what was Christian doctrine and what was heresy yeah but what you get of, of, of course you get that you get the first century birth of Christianity in the Jewish monotheistic context and then preaching out into the Gentile world and then the Gentiles hearing this information try and interpret it against the background of of Greek philosophical worldview beliefs and so on, and you get sort of incipient Gnosticism and, and Gnosticism, and the sort of the sort of the world is evil, physical things are evil, and the spiritual is the good, and um, the whole point of like the sort of Platonic, we want to escape from the prison of the body and become these pure souls in the realm of of the pure spiritual and so on, which is very sort of un un Jewish and un Christian. Kind of, you know, God's become incarnate in the flesh um, and raised from the dead in a glorious spiritual body. Um, very un-Greek. You can see why the Greeks sort of, you know, it's foolishness to the Greeks, as Paul, Paul says. Uh, and you get these sort of second century Gnostic Gospels and, and things. And the earliest, probably the Gospel of Thomas, which is just a series of sayings of Jesus, some of which might even go back, a few of them, um, sort of mid second century, maybe probably the earliest one, and then you get the, these others in growth, and then that's why you get church councils like the Council of Nicaea. But all of the the earliest evidence, all of the first century evidence, which is what we have in the New Testament, <laughs> um, is you know, the, the the Christianity that we know and love, as it as it were. <laughs> Um, yeah. It's consistent and it's, um, it's uh, agreeing one with the other. Yeah, but of multiple independent sources, some of them very, very early, particularly when you look at some of the early Christian sort of creeds or, or hymns that are quoted in New Testament letters by people like Paul. Um, 
the 1 Corinthians 15 creed of the appearances of the, the resurrected Jesus to the disciples, thought by scholars of all stripes to go back within years, if not months, of the resurrection appearances. Um, passages like the passage in Philippians about uh, Jesus being in the very form of God and then taking on the form of a servant and so on. And these are you know, predating these letters of the sort of 50s okay. AD of Paul. Um, yeah. Grand. What's that we doing? Time. Quarter past nine. Quarter past nine. Sorry. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> if it's your appreciation.